This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. I feel like I haven't recorded a podcast in a while, so everyone needs to bear with me, including my guest, Eli Pariser. Hi, Eli. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for beaming in from Maine for this one. Uh, many of you learned about Eli when he coined the, the term the filter bubble, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, you may know him as the guy who created Upworthy, which is briefly one of the most influential companies in media. He's now a co-founder of something called Civic Signals slash New Public, which I I think describes itself as a newsletter, magazine, and community, and he's going to explain to us what all of that is. But I I do want to start off with the filter bubble idea, Eli, because you coined that, what, back in 2011? Do I have the date right? Yep, that was when it started. So we are nearly 10 years later. Um, This was an enormously influential idea, and then people have criticized it. Um, It seems pretty straightforward and and pretty important to talk about uh, in late 2020, where 70 or 80 percent of Republicans believed the the election was fraudulent. Um, Can you just, first of all, in case anyone hasn't heard of the filter bubble, explain what that idea is? So the filter bubble is just the notion that increasingly we live in um, our own algorithmically curated information universes. This seems like like a given now. Yeah, like no. like it was a new idea because we you coined this sort of the early days of Facebook and early days of Twitter, and now it seems like a given. Uh, is there is there a nuance to it that people don't understand, or 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 they think they're talking about the filter bubble, but they're getting something wrong? Is there any sort of next level that we needed we need to understand about the, the, that concept? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot to it actually because I think people. You know, it's it's fascinating to like have this term that means one thing to me and then see it like go out into the world and be used to mean all sorts of things. And some of what it's meaning for people is like, I'm around mostly people who are similar to me, which is partly driven by geographic trends, right? Like we live near people who are like us more. And some of what it tends to mean is like I follow I follow people who are like me. And what I was really focused on specifically was Um, the role that algorithms were playing in trying to kind of infer who we were and target content to us. But I think I've uh, really tried to be like, you know, if I'm going to be the filter bubble guy and talking about how we're kind of like uh, blinded to some things that we don't want to hear, like I've been trying to be that about the filter bubble. And one of the things that I think I've really shifted on is the notion that I think the filter bubble, you know, sort of when I was presenting it, it was like this call to not uh, filter out content that we might disagree with, that we might find concerning. Right. And the way the way you counteract this in theory was, you know, you don't eat nothing but but sweets. You have vegetables. You, you if you if you're a right leaning person, you make sure to ingest some liberal content into yeah. your feed and vice versa. Yeah, and and I think now what we know, and this is partly from research uh, that's been done since, is like as a as a left leaning person, like me reading Fox News often will just confirm like my worst thoughts about folks on the right. Um, and so it's not just about coming into contact with different ideas like that, that in the same way, actually, that like, you don't build tolerance just by like, seeing people who are different, you have to actually like, form a relationship and be in certain kinds of contexts in order to actually like create that understanding. So I think that's like, I feel pretty differently about that now than I did, you know, nine years ago. Because that was one of 
mostly Facebook, because this is mostly a Facebook discussion, but Facebook has countered this argument for a long time, saying, actually, you know, people who have a much people who are spending time on Facebook get much more diverse information than, than you'd think. Uh, and they would prop up various uh, they, they they'd bring out various studies to prove it and it's kind of hard because you can't ever peek behind the curtain. Do you think that that argument is correct though that Facebook is actually sort of less filtery than you might expect or less I bubbly mean, than you might expect? I think um, you know most people don't pay a lot of attention to politics and get a kind of smattering of all sorts of stuff, right? Like, like I think one of the challenges is that heavy news consumers and heavy political uh, activism, you know, folks of which I'm, I'm, I'm in both of those categories tend to like extrapolate out that our media diet is the same as most people's. And it's right. like most people in America still uh, get their news from local TV, right? So it's not that hard to be more diverse than local TV. But I think the real question is, what are the effects that this has on um, partisans? And I mean, even if, you know, even if Facebook is exposing people to some diverse information, what's the effect of the algorithm? And their own studies now demonstrate that, um, you know, they tend to show you more stuff that aligns with what you are predisposed to believe anyway politically, and that that tends to have a polarizing effect. It is funny because there are genuinely brilliant people here uh, with PhDs and computer science and all sorts of stuff working on this. But sometimes, uh, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the algorithm talk um, sort of implies that there's like magic going on here, and it seems much <laughs> more simple, right? Like anyone who's ever bought anything from Amazon or looked at a video on YouTube, the next thing the computer shows you is something that's similar to that with the assumption that it probably is something you're interested in. And some percent of the time they're right and very often they're wrong, but they're going to keep doing it because that's the easiest, most logical way of guessing at what you're interested in. Um, and it seems it seems pretty self-evident. Yeah, although, I mean, it's interesting how different platforms play this, right? So there was a study that came out um, just just last month that was looking at the difference between um, Reddit and Facebook in terms of what news people consume when they use each platform. And so it was a really interesting study because they were looking across people who are using both platforms and saying basically like, in a month where you use Reddit more, what kind of news do you consume? In a month where you use Facebook more, what kind of news do, do you consume? And what they found was that people who are using Facebook more, especially on the right, tended to see dramatically more conservative news than they otherwise would. Whereas people who were, whereas when the same people used Reddit more, they saw dramatically more, um, you know, sort of moderate news. And that's partly because of the structure of subreddits and the way that, you know, these different platforms distribute attention. So I think it is simple, but also, um, you know, these design decisions about how the platforms are constructed really can have an enormous impact. And so what what is the fact that we we I mean I you probably I'm sure you have followed this right that there was a huge shift um within days of the election hmm. uh among Americans who thought there was a free and fair election versus ones that thought there was a fraudulent and basically the the percentage of Republicans who thought there was fraud leapt leapt up enormously in just a several days right just based on the fact that they it looked like Trump had lost and Trump was declaring fraud and it looked like popular opinion, caveats for all polls, shifted dramatically. What, what does that tell us, if anything, about filter bubbles? And maybe that's got nothing to do with the algorithms. That's the power of Fox News and power of suggestion, and it's, it's separate from platforms and algorithms. So, so and just to be clear, you're asking, like, 
why did Republicans after the election all of a sudden consolidate around the fraud narrative? Yes. Sorry. Okay. Thank you for putting that more eloquently than I did. Oh, no, I'm just because so I think actually, I mean, um, I think what happened was if you look at polls before the election, Republicans uh, in general were extremely confident that they were going to win. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that if you presented a scenario where Trump was contesting the election, that reduced their confidence that he was going to win because they hadn't considered the possibility that he was going to contest it. Right. And so, you know, I think part of what happened was all of a sudden on election night, it seems like maybe he's not going to. And it took a couple of days to sort of for the narrative to reform around the fraud explanation as a kind of ex post facto explanation for why for how to connect the dots. Right. And I guess um, the question number or the second part of that question is how much of that is something that that is that we can chalk up to Facebook in the way and social media distributes information versus traditional sort of, uh, you know, one to many uh, Fox News or local news or even just the president yelling on 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 Twitter? Yeah, I mean, the, this is where it gets really hard to detangle, right? Because like, do you chalk the president's ability to talk to 70 million people on, uh, you know, on, on Facebook or on Twitter, is that a function of social media or is that a function of the president's bully pulpit? And it's kind of both, right? Like the president's never had that level of ability to just reach all of his followers very quickly and cheaply at the touch of a button. And so that's partly a social media thing. That's part. And, and if you look at engagement around Trump's posts, like, I believe it's never been higher than it was in November, uh, you know, 2020. Like, he, he's at his peak of reach himself at that time. So I think, um, you know, we probably want to distinguish between kind of like the horizontal and bottom-up stuff like QAnon, that's like the internet doing its weird internet-y thing, and then really sort of like a new form of personal broadcast that is very effective for Trump. And Yokai Benkler um, at Harvard has a really great study showing that, for example, with mail fraud, there wasn't really like a like bottom-up revolution on mail fraud. It wasn't like people were spreading that except for when Trump talked about it. And mm-hmm. he was really like the vector that spread the notion. That Whereas there was- QAnon, as you were just referencing, sort of bubbled up from the weird parts of the internet and then gets sort of baked into Facebook and Instagram. It, the president harnesses that eventually, but it comes to him. He's not pushing it out. Exactly. And, you know, and he's a savvy, I mean, he's very good at kind of seeing that stuff and, and amplifying it. So they, so there's a feedback mechanism here. Mm-hmm. But I think the point is that it's probably less about the algorithm and more about him being able to directly go to, you know, tens of millions of people who want to hear from him. So it seems like a lot of your career over the last decade has been spent sort of getting the idea of the filter bubble out and then trying to figure out ways to harness it for good or to maybe counteract it. It seems like the latter is what you're doing now with, with, uh, here you describe, do we call it new public? Do we call it civic signals? Why don't you explain what you're doing today? (laughs) So, so, um, civic signals is the research project and new public is kind of this, this newsletter magazine that we're starting. And basically what we're trying to do is, uh, both is, is help build, uh, better, uh, digital public spaces. And so what, what I mean by that is like, 
partly about Facebook, but partly about what happens after Facebook. And how do we build the, the spaces that do the things that public space spaces do in physical societies to bring people together to help us like overcome difference and forge a, a group identity. And um, with Talia Straub, my, my research partner, we've done, you know, a year and a half of research, um, really trying to get to the bottom of like, and, and you can think of this as like, basically, what are what would you want to design to counteract the effects of the filter bubble, right? Like what, what, what do we need um, in place to help do the things that kind of help people see each other and bring each other, bring, bring uh, communities together. And so we're launching kind of a, a research framework around that, but then we also are really trying to like push toward how can we imagine beyond Facebook, beyond Twitter, the kind of institutions that we need if we're really serious about having a healthy digital ecosystem. So let's let's focus on that that second part. So this is let's start with the first idea, which is this is beyond Twitter and beyond Facebook. So this isn't making Facebook better or making Twitter better or or you know even Facebook you know pushing groups now um, or any version of that or I guess you could say beyond Nextdoor, right? You're not you're saying we're not trying to make those platforms better. We want to create new things that I think are generally nonprofits, right? Yeah. So I think one of the big insights that Talia had early in our research process was that people often talk about problems on the internet as kind of information problems, right? So it's like, it's about people are exchanging information and some of the information is bad. And how do we like get in the middle of that? And I think we started thinking about it as, well, what if we think about these as actually relational problems? So um, the information happens, you know, over a network that is human relationships and human relationships are actually much more important in terms of situating, you know, how people interact. And when we started thinking about it that way, we, we realized like, oh, this isn't actually a new set of problems um, because uh, the problems of how do you get strangers to behave well and form relationships together are things that city planners and urban designers and people who have kind of been building physical places have been thinking about for literally like millennia. And there are some good solutions there. And there are also some uh, tried and, and known failure areas there. <laughs> and so um, instead of treating tech as like this totally new, you know, we've got to reinvent everything from scratch environment. What if we were to really think through how to apply the learnings from physical spaces to what we're doing in digital space. But but why and, but why does this have to be something that's beyond Facebook or after Facebook? Why can't you right. be just arguing with Facebook about look, we have a set of, of principles and solutions that we think you should be applying to your problems. You should in spending all your time trying to reform Facebook, since that's where everyone is hanging out or many people are hanging out today. Why yeah. why try to create new structures? Um, and, and, and I think that's where you get when you think about this urban metaphor. So, you know, in physical communities, businesses play a really important role. They're the third spaces, but they're not the only institutions and they're not the only spaces. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, in any community, there are going to be a whole bunch of needs that need to be met that aren't going to be met by the market, which, you know, I think is not a radical notion, right? Like, we have libraries and schools and parks because um, a for-profit park doesn't do all of the things that a park that's actually accessible to everyone and for the public does. And um, when you talk to scholars of 
democracy or scholars of healthy societies, um, they point to those institutions as actually like really critical pieces of what's holding things together. Because, you know, generally the the kinds of your opportunity to kind of learn to be comfortable with and tolerate people unlike you generally happens in those public spaces. And it's like, and it doesn't, by the way, it's not, it's not like it happens because we're arguing about politics. It happens because like, I'm sitting on my, you know, little part of, you know, Fort Greene Park and someone else is sitting right over here. And we're just like, okay, to be together in the same space and kind of realizing that there are people too, right? And and that's how you start to develop some some comfort with difference. It's funny, it's, the pandemic really underlines that, right? Because now you have to be very conscious of the fact that there's someone near you in the park and how okay are you with that and under what conditions are you okay with that and how does that change if that person's not wearing a mask? So what is what is different in the the new public version of these spaces uh, and we can talk about how you'd actually build it, but well, what are the big yeah. ideas that are different in what you, you're proposing then and what's on Facebook today or Nextdoor or Twitter or Reddit, any any commercial public gathering space on the internet? Right, so I think you know one of the things that's different when you look at like, well, what's different, you know, if you compare a library and a bookstore, right? You know, similar institutions in some ways, they're both about provisioning books, but, uh, one of the big differences is, um, you know, what's the function of the people who work there and what's the business model? And I think at the end of the day, you know, if you were to take a library and try to optimize it as a growth oriented VC business, you would not have many librarians per customer. That's the first thing that you would try to do. But when you look at the social output and the social generativity of a library, it's all about the librarians. And so, you know, this is like a, a recurring theme. It, 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 there's a part of me that feels like, oh, community on the internet isn't really that hard. It's just hard if you take away the people whose job it is to make community work, right? <laughs> and that's essentially what we've done with the with with platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Is like the the whole model is to take out not only like the the people who are doing that librarian function you know, the, the editors and all of the people who do the work of like curating and filtering knowledge. It's like, that's what the business model is, is to abstract that stuff out. And that's, and it's not a coincidence that you see Twitter and Facebook and YouTube grudgingly after 2016 say, all right, we're going to hire a bunch more poorly paid people to moderate our, our systems. And we're going to spend a lot of money on it, but our hope is this is temporary. And yeah. that we can go back to not having them because we'll have fixed our software, uh, which yeah. was the whole premise of the idea to begin with, which is that our, our that we'd have this we'd have this system built on our software and then users who you know make the software go, and that's kind of it, and that's why these things are so potentially enormously valuable. We're going to pause that for a little bit, go hire a bunch of people in the Philippines, but that's a temporary solution. Well, but actually, I would I would go go further and say, I mean. I don't think enough attention has been paid to the fact that when it came to COVID and when it came to this incredibly contentious election, Facebook basically said, like, you know, social media isn't going to cut it. And they literally started pointing people to a hub curated by journalists that was essentially like the Facebook newspaper of COVID 
as their way of dealing with it. Right. We're going to do the thing that we always said we didn't want to do, which is make decisions yeah. based on our own understanding of how the world works, about what's important for you to understand. And we're going to direct you toward that and away from bad stuff, which we are determining on our own. We're not bothering to like look for third party. Well, you know, we've got a whole Facebook cord and we do still do fact checking and all of that. But we all know that black is different than white and up is different than down. And we're going to guide you temporarily in that direction. Yeah, and I think you know, the, and, and and those efforts were imperfect, but also um, I think generally we're seen to be a big step forward in terms of like uh, the approach to the misinformation. But it raises this big question, which is like, well, if that's the appropriate response to COVID and the appropriate response to the election, what about climate change? What about the economic stimulus? What about you know? And you could go on and on. And so to me, it's just this concession that, you know, you can't do everything with an algorithm and um, you need some people involved as well. And, and, and I think part of where we can find some, some hope and a model here is like, if you look at the relationship between Google and Wikipedia. So, you know, here's an interesting example of like, Google could be the source of truth for a lot of these things. But it's actually like much better for Google to have this external institution to point to, to be like, they have their own thing and, and their nonprofit and they're figuring it out. And, you know, that's the kind of symbiotic relationship that I think we need a lot more of in digital space. And so that's you know, how do we build more of those is a lot of what we're trying to, like, get at. We're going to take a quick break from our conversation. We'll be right back with Eli Pariser. And we're back. So you would like people presumably communities, to fund and build digital gathering places that have moderators, that, that have rules of the road. Um, you've got a line here in, on one of your pages about public spaces should not be frictionless, right? You shouldn't just be able to do whatever you want. Um, friction and under-optimization lead to serendipitous, incidental, and generative human interactions. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a mouthful. But, but so you want, you want to create these spaces. Um, how do you imagine literally that these things are going to get built? Is this a tax? Is this up to individual communities to sort of find funding for it? I mean, these are interesting ideas. How do you turn them into reality? Yeah, so I, I think um, you know, there was a report from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences that was looking at kind of like the future of American civic life. And one of the proposals in there that I think is, is a good one is to say, you know, I, I mean, in a way, companies like Facebook and Twitter are, are doing two things. On the one hand, they're taking the attention out of these, the existing you know, public spaces and moving it into these private platforms. But then they're also taking the funding out from under a lot of the institutions that serve these roles. So if you look at like local newspapers, you know, the, in the town that I grew up in Maine, like, you know, there was a letters to the editor page that was a place where a lot of the community discussion happened and it was edited and curated and carefully constructed to like have that conversation. Well, you know, that's gone now. And uh, that's because of the revenue uh, that's been pulled into mm -hmm. Facebook. So what the Academy of Arts and Sciences is saying is like, let's put a tax on, um, you know, targeted digital advertising and let's use that to fund the public functions that um, essentially have been monetized by those platforms. And to me, that seems like a fair trade. It's not saying that you can't have a platform. It's just saying that like, we need to find a way to like deal with the negative externalities that the platforms are created. And who's going to build this stuff? Is it 
you guys or are you setting up ideas that you want other people to sort of take and, and use on their own? Do you want a national organization to set up, you know, thousands of individual uh, chapters of, of these spaces? Or do you think that people are going to sort of figure it out on their own? So we're trying to build like kind of the the community of people who are who are working on this set of issues, right? Because it, it is going to take, it's, it's not something, you know, the solution to Facebook isn't like, Facebook.org. That's the public interest version of Facebook, right? And it's not even you know trying to do all of the things that Facebook does. You know, again, I think the Wikipedia thing is an example in that you're taking one particular function that's better done outside of a market institution and doing that really well and in the public interest. And so, you know, we think there'll be hundreds or thousands of these kinds of institutions. And what we want to be doing is kind of connecting them and helping them inspire each other. Because I think that's how we get to like a healthier, better internet um, when 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 we have that kind of uh, set of institutions and people working together. So I think it was a year ago, but it could have been two years ago because time is is gone. Uh, I talked to John <laughs> Thornton, also out of yeah. Texas, uh, about mm-hmm. the American Journalism Project, and it seems like he's kind of grappling with a lot of the same stuff, which is there's no longer any newspapers, there's a local news crisis, there's a local news deserts. Um, and he's again sort of proposing, here's some basic ideas for how we think we can work and, and kind of coming at some of the same conclusions you are, except there's one big difference. He says these things have to be for-profit institutions. We we can support them with philanthropy. We, we you know, they, they can they can receive donations. Um, but we think actually capitalism is a good model for solving this problem of, of, of and it's not exactly the same problem, but pretty similar. Why, why do you want to pursue a nonprofit? Why, why do you want to strip profit out of this? Well, I, uh, I, if I, you know, and I, I'm a huge admirer of what John and Elizabeth are doing there, and it is very analogous. And I don't think in my understanding, they're saying, I think they're actually pretty agnostic about whether it's for-profit or non-profit. I think what they're saying is it needs to be sustainable and it needs to have kind of a revenue model that isn't doesn't make it totally dependent on state funding and totally dependent on um, charity. Uh, you know, charity. Yeah. And, you know, so the Texas Tribune does a whole mix of things and it gets some grants and it does membership and it does parties and whatever else, mm-hmm. you know. And that's absolutely what we would expect for these kinds of institutions too. you know, Wikipedia, you know, again, similar model, right? Like gets some funding from, uh, from people on the internet, gets some funding from grants. And so I think the key though, is what is your business, you know, or what is the institution structured around? And I guess this is just the, the, the main point is I think when you have an, an organization that's structured around, growth and around giving a 10x return to investors, you know, your incentives are just different. And, um, and there are some things that are well suited to that. But that but when you're trying to, I mean, look, like, if you think about social work, or you think about libraries, or you think about schools, a lot of the most important work is the work that's also the most laborious and time consuming, and the hardest to optimize. And that's, intrinsic to the project of trying to do something that's trying to like invite everyone in and remediate some of the inequalities in society. But 
it, it makes for a bad business, right? <laughs> so this is this is theoretical by design. Is there a real world version of this uh, that you guys have either created or endorsed, or you'd say we didn't make this, but we'd like to see ten thousand more of these specific things? Yeah, we're starting to see. I mean, all all over the place. There are um, you know there's sort of uh, there's a, a coalition in um, the Netherlands that's doing really exciting work called Public Spaces. Actually, um, kind of starting to figure out. Uh, you know, essentially a bunch of media organizations um, that realize like, hey, why don't we actually like build some of our own common space rather than relying on on Facebook? You know, there are low profit, um, exciting models like Front Porch Forum in Vermont, which is something that like most households in Vermont use as a place to do their kind of like town discussion. Um, it's super moderated. It's modestly profitable, but it's never going to be like an amazing mm -hmm. business. And um, it works, you know, and it works because you can post once a day. But, you know, so that, I think it's I'm smiling because I think it's not a coincidence that 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 I asked you for real world examples and you cited the Netherlands and Vermont, which is sort of like the <laughs> the 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 blue state, a, you know, platonic a, a ideals. Yeah. yeah. So how how would this work? Like, do you think you know? I was just talking to my friend Zach, who just came back from the Dakotas, uh, and he's like, mm -hmm. "It is crazy there. Like, you know, people are actively not wearing masks." Um, this was a few weeks ago. Um, maybe yeah. it's changed. Uh, how does it? How, how do you imagine this works in a non-blue uh, state in a in a non-sort of you know Brooklyn of the mind uh, <laughs> kind of place? Yeah. No, I think. Those are actually like many of the places where it's most important to do the work. And I, I guess I think the thing I would say is, you know, this doesn't have to be like, I'm, I'm actually really not talking primarily about more places to talk about politics on the internet, um, because that's not what, that's not how the important functions of public space are served, right? Like you don't go to the park Mostly conversations with strangers about politics, online or offline, are terrible, right? Like that's, <laughs> and it doesn't help engender trust, and it doesn't help engender relationships. And what does? Uh, you wouldn't go to the park if the idea was maybe I'll talk to a stranger about politics. You would not yeah, want to exactly. go to the park. Yeah, no, and and I mean I've been a canvasser, uh, but it, we all know how it feels to like have someone walk up to you and like wanna wanna discuss something with you, and. Um, so that's kind of, I think, it's sort of like a mis mistake on what the online public sphere should be, that it should be a good place for that. And I think for me, you know, really what we need is the institutions that help create those softer relationships and the trust that then engender an ability to kind of hang together as a community. And so, you know, when you think about the the red states and the blue states, I think there are lots of community needs that uh, are not met, that are not about politics, that need their own public spaces. And again, you know, it's like, there was a there was a researcher on polarization that was looking at like, what online conversations bring people together. You know, one of the top categories is sports, right? Because you, you have this other identity that's your local identity that supersedes your partisan identity. And it's not a coincidence that like baseball fields and soccer fields are a big part of what towns build in their public spaces. So how do we build that kind of uh, space, you know, for for digital discussion? OK, but but they, these things don't exist in Bismarck or Fargo yet. Right. You can't point me to one. 
there's no digital version of what you're talking about in, um, in... i i can't point you to the bismarck uh public space yet but okay. we'll let's talk in a year and we'll try to we'll try to spend something up for you fair enough uh you, you have a good spirit about all this um in, in, <laughs> in uh along those lines i do want to talk about upworthy in your experience in, in digital publishing yeah so there was a moment 2013-ish, where you guys yeah. seemed like you'd cracked the code on on Facebook publishing. That you were and you were early on in sort of figuring out how to harness Facebook, which there was a four-ish year period where everyone did that. Um, and you were also trying to do it for good, right? You were trying to spread positive messages, and it looked like you guys had cracked the code. I'm Chris Hughes, who'd been at Facebook, invested. I remember going to a party at. Chris Hughes's house, yeah, or I guess apartment, um, mostly because I wanted to see uh, what Chris Hughes's house looked like. Uh, but it, it, it was hosting it for you, and 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 you guys seemed like you had sort of solved Facebook and solved publishing, and then it didn't work because Facebook pivoted, and we all, everyone, sort of eventually figured out Facebook was not a great place to build a media business or a certain kind of media business. Um, are there things about Upworthy and what you guys were doing that you think? If we had just executed differently, or if we had timed it differently, this thing could have worked. Or was it just a flawed idea from the get-go that that you would be able to harness Facebook as a as a media company? Um, I mean, I think being a venture-backed media business, with all due apologies to your employer, is really it's hard, right? Like yeah. it is not it's not a business that totally lends itself to venture funding, I think. Um, and that's because, you know, for a lot of the reasons we've been discussing, right? Like the work. And traditionally, that, by the way, media companies weren't venture backed. Right. Because they there wasn't a way to get you 10x returns because you had to hire more people to make more content. That's how you grew. Yeah. And so I think there was a, you know, uh, Upworthy launched in this brief moment where I and, and other people thought, uh, okay, maybe there is some way to get to like a really large scale by leveraging these platforms. And of course, at the end of the day, the platforms don't want to be leveraged to extract advertising money when they are the advertising platform. Um, and so I think building uh, especially mission-driven media companies that are uh, venture-funded, I think that's, I, I wouldn't try to do that again. And it's part, of, in fact, of what's kind of led me where I am, which is just to this kind of like sober acknowledgement that there are some things that are better done in other kind of institutional forms than, you know, VC back. So it's not it's not even Facebook specific. It's it's business model specific, or or the fact that it is a, that 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 you were trying to create a, a sort of a socially conscious business, just media yeah. business. And and it's not to say that it, it isn't possible at all. But I think our our theory was attention is moving to social. We want to be in that social conversation with content that um, lifts up what we consider to be meaningful, you know, topics. And hopefully we can build a, a business around that. And I think in retrospect, it's like the first two parts of that are totally right on. But, uh, you know, how do you, <laughs> the, the, how do you build like a, a really large scale revenue business? It's just really hard. And there are people who are doing it like Fox and like BuzzFeed and, you know, but it's like it's a slog, and right? It's a slog, and the 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 pitch four or five years ago when they were raising hundreds of millions of dollars, that's my employer, that's BuzzFeed, that's Vice, wasn't. This is a slog. This is we have now figured out. We've figured out. 
we're no longer, and it's the whole idea of, of the full stack company, right? That's the, we're, we're not a media company. We're a tech company that also does media. And it turns out no, we're, we're, we're media companies and we're all just trying to cobble together revenue from as many different sources as we can find, which is kind of a very old fashioned model. But for a few years, it seemed like we'd, we'd gotten rid of those rules and we'd created a new kind of company, but that didn't exist. Yeah, I guess this and, is more and, of a this is more of a, a autopsy of not autopsy because we're still alive a vox media more <laughs> than it's upworthy. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's I think the thing that's been amazing about what Vox has been able to do is to retain you know some really high quality work in the midst of all of that. But I think it's just easy you know, and I can say this from experience looking at the like balance sheets to go you know to draw a circle around like oh this big important and you know investigative project that's expensive that not that many people will look at like let's just cross that off so that we can get to break even Mm -hmm. and um that's what a lot of the media business is doing right now and i think it's why we have to like start to develop other theories of how we're going to support that work because it's not necessarily going to happen kind of because there are already huge margins that we can kind of play with in, in media. I was going to say, whenever anyone compliments my employer, that's when I should stop the podcast before it <laughs> turns south. Um, but I think we should leave it there. We've got a little bit of optimism. We've got a little bit of cynicism and, and resignation. Um, let's check back maybe in a year. Uh, you can show me the Bismarck front porch. Bismarck will be up and running. .org. Okay, good. Thanks, Eli. Yeah. Nice to chat. Good to talk to you. Thanks again to Eli for helping me improve my my cloudy and muddy thoughts. It feels like I haven't recorded a podcast in a while. Thanksgiving break was not that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago. Thanks again to Jelati and Joel who produce and edit this show. Thanks again to our sponsors. And thanks again to you guys. You guys send me nice notes. You send me nice emails. You send me nice tweets about how I made your, uh, your Spotify top list for the end of the year. All that's very much appreciated. We like making this show. We love that you get to listen to it. We'll be back next week.